0: Good evening. Uh, We're going to be in Mark chapter uh, 15. So if you don't already have your Bibles open, you can open them now. And uh, today we're going to be talking about, uh, as we're going to dig in to the crucifixion of Christ. If you've been a Christian for some time or grew up in a Christian home, this is not a new topic. In fact, It can even be sometimes to the extent that we hear it so often that, God forbid, that it loses its meaning or its value, and so my hope is tonight, by the help of the Holy Spirit, to to just dig in and maybe pull out some some fresh insight, maybe not new, but fresh, and if not fresh, then maybe new. Um, When I was 18 years old, I gave my life to Christ. I was working at a telemarketing agency, there was a young man who lived in a he didn't live. He uh, worked in the cubicle next to me. Uh, he was, <laughs> it was like we lived there. He was, he was an atheist uh, to the core. And I had given my life to Christ. And so they had seen the transformation from uh, popping pills with him to all of a sudden bringing my Bible to work with me. And so uh, this, this, this young man, this atheist, he could draw. And so I asked him to draw me a picture of uh, Jesus on the cross. I took that picture home, I put it on my wall, and uh, this was what 24 years ago now, I penned uh, what I'm going to call tonight a spoken word. It was a rap at the time. But it says, "Can you imagine it? Hanging there, bleeding to death, wheezing for breath, your stomach hurts, because you got beaten the chest? You're all bloody from the feet to your head, from the look of things, you would think you'd be dead, but you're not. Because you got to finish the work, every second's like a minute, every minute it hurts, you're screaming in pain, oh God, screaming his name. Why have you forsaken me, this is the reason I came, you crying inside, but you can't cry from your eyes, because your face is so swole that it's driving you blind. Your back aches, because pressure is applied to your spine when you press upon your feet, because you're trying to climb up the cross just to get a gasp of air, and meanwhile, everybody laughs and cheers. It's only been 10 minutes, but it feels like half a year. The Roman soldiers grab and tear at your clothes, leaving your private exposed. Humiliated is how you die for the throne, and they witness at the sight of your death, and they watch you as you're fighting for breath. Every insult feels like a knife in your chest, and blood drips down your neck from the spikes in your head. The crown of thorns, somebody sound the horn because the curtain from the temple, yo, they found it torn. That means salvation's free. He paid defeat. I once was blind, but now he made me see. I went from peewee to playing in the major leagues. The temple was destroyed in one day, but raised in three. Could you walk in his shoes, drink from his cup? He opened up his arms like I love you this much. Could you do what he did and die so that we live? If you could, then your name is Jesus. Could you walk in his shoes, drink from his cup? He opened up his arms like I love you this much. Could you do what he did and die so that we live? If you could, then your name is Jesus. Can you imagine it? Getting hit in the jaw with people standing over you yelling, pick up the cross. They take a stick and strike you over the head, over and over and over again. They beat you down. They smile when they see you frown. They spit in your face and laugh as you bleed on the ground. You try to get up, but you can barely walk. So they force another man to carry the cross. You've been condemned. All you did is give to men. You lived for them, but they would rather live for sin. You never fought back, but you get whipped again. So hard that it rips your skin. Betrayed by the kiss of a friend. Slain by the fists of men. On a scale of one to five, the pain gets a 10. But you haven't even felt the half, felt the wrath. Until you feel the cross rub against your back. Thoughts on life and death are running through your mind. And splinters from the wood are running through your spine. This is worse than any story in the New York Times. They found you guilty and never even knew your crime. Every woman and man is there. They stand and stare and watch as you hang like a chandelier. Can you bear the nails in both your legs, both your arms, even though you know they're wrong? Can you imagine it? That's why I wrote this song. You can laugh, but it's you that the joke is on. Could you walk in his shoes, drink from his cup? He opened up his arms like, I love you this much. Could you do what he did and die so that we live? If you could, then your name is Jesus. They drove nails through his hands. You could see the blood squirt. Now I know what they mean when they say that love hurts. Imagine torture, only this is much worse. Just the thought makes me wanna hit the ground and hug dirt. Why'd he do it for me? I wouldn't have done it for him. I'm not a righteous man. Matter of fact, I'm nothing but sin. I'm not clean. I got dirt stuck to my skin. And it's like I'm proud of it. So I cuss and I grin. I said, I hate you. And he told me that he loved me. I stabbed him in his back and he turned around and hugged me. They beat him when instead they should have mugged me, should have left me on the cross and watched the blood leak. My tongue speaks. All I do is curse and lie. That's why I deserve to die. Go to hell, man. I should be the first to fry. But they gave him the blame like he was worse than I, worse than he, worse than she. Straight up, cold-blooded murder in the first degree. You ain't got to go to church to believe because you heard it from me. Just close your eyes and think of the murderous scene. Could you walk in his shoes, drink from his cup? He opened up his arms like I love you this much. Could you do what he did and die so that we live? If you could, then your name is Jesus. As we turn to Matthew chapter 15, verse 33, we peer into uh, what was for me, inspiration to write the song, but more than just inspiration to write, inspiration to live. I remember it was reading John 3:16 16, uh, when I had asked myself this question, essentially it was the Holy Spirit, but you know, you kind of hear the Holy Spirit through your own voice sometimes in your mind, and, and I asked myself, how could I run from a God who's running after me? That he came from heaven to the earth and he took my place. In fact, to give it a, a, a more visual appeal, uh, I remember not knowing anything about the Bible, reading through the book of Deuteronomy, and as I'm reading all the laws that God had laid out for his people, and I, and I, and I didn't have enough knowledge yet to understand what the new covenant was or uh, what it meant to be uh, an Israelite, a Jew. And, and so I'm reading the laws that God had given his people. And as I'm reading it, I'm, I'm seeing uh, one law in particular, and I won't talk about it, what it was uh, tonight. Uh, in fact, I, I never really talk about it. It's, it's too shameful to admit. But uh, one specific law that if anybody had committed this sin, they were to be stoned to death. And that scared me because I was like, well, uh, it wasn't so much that I was asking, "Well, what kind of God is this that would stone somebody to death?" It was. It was more like the knee-jerk reaction was, "Oh my goodness! If this God is so holy that people who commit this sin deserve to be stoned, there was no questions asked. I'm in trouble." And as I become more familiar with the gospel, I understood that it, it was as if Jesus uh, had walked in my place, had opened up his arms, and took the stones that were getting ready to be hurled at me. Not because of man's judgment, but because of God's judgment through man. That they had the right, as it were, to put me to death. That was, uh, you know, I often tell my fellow evangelists that these signs out on the strip that say, uh, repent. And as they're screaming on the microphone, that they're missing a whole piece of the gospel. And yes, God's word is powerful and does not come back void. And, And when I read about God's judgment, it shook me, but it didn't break me. And I believe that that's how it is for all of us that we could warn people about hell and we should and God willing they'll be shaken but it will never break a man's heart. The Bible says it's the kindness of God that draws men to repentance. Well how do you recounsel those two things? How do you find out that God is a God of judgment that you deserve to die and that somehow his love for you breaks your heart? And those two things can only be recounseled on the cross. When we see That Jesus took the judgment of God that I deserved it, but the mercies of God for me placed his own son on the cross in my place. The stones, as they were, were flying in my direction, and Jesus takes the judgment of God. And that, at the age of 18, broke me. Because I thought, man, I'm living my own life, doing my own thing, going my own way. And excuse my language, but... This is the reality. It was like I had my middle finger up to heaven saying, God, I don't care. And God's response to me was not to point his finger in my face and say, how dare you? His response to me was say, look at what I've done for you. That though you run after me, I come running after you. And at 18, I don't know what that does for you, but for me, it broke me that I have the audacity to spit in God's face, and he, he returns my hatred with kindness. Are you with me tonight? I know you're with me tonight, or you wouldn't be here. And the reason I take the time to say this is because as we look into Jesus hanging on the cross, we're reminded that that it was for you and for me. So let's, let's talk about it. Mark 15, says, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. According to this, Christ's crucifixion began approximately 9 a.m., also using the Jewish system of marking time, Matthew says from the sixth hour there was darkness, over the land until the ninth hour. That is, the darkness lasted from 12 noon to 3 p.m. It's estimated that Jesus was on the cross for about six hours. Now, a lot of times when we talk about the cross, when I say we, I mean the big C, big church, I think we spend a lot of time uh, almost trying to exaggerate what Christ suffered. Even even as you listen to the spoken word I just gave, uh, if you're not careful, you'll hone in on uh, just the, the the suffering. And I and I want us to be reminded that uh, some people would argue, no, it wasn't. He wasn't there for six hours. He was there for for twelve hours, or whatever the case may be. But I think when we get caught up in uh, trying to inflate how much Jesus suffered or how long he was on the cross, we're missing the entire point is it possible to dwell too much upon the physical suffering that we lose sight of the one who suffered let let me just give you an example of that I remember watching the passion of Christ with some family members they were non-believers we get done watching the passion of Christ and there's moments of it that are just they're just heart-wrenching I mean for anybody believer or not a non-believer Because you're watching this individual go through horrific pain. But if you're a believer, uh, you're not watching an individual go through horrific pain. You're watching the Son of God suffer. Those are two totally different things. So we get done with the movie, and my family member says, Oh my goodness, men can be so evil. Look at what we can do to one another. And I'm thinking, Oh my goodness, you missed the entire movie. Men are so wicked that it's not what we can just do to one another. It's what we can do to God himself if he came in the flesh and he did and this is how we responded. We are so adamant about rebelling against the kingdom of God that if God came in the flesh and he did, we would kill him. And that's exactly what we see here. So we can get so caught up in how Jesus suffered that we forget who it was that actually suffered. As you're watching the passion of Christ, if you're a believer, your heart is wrenched, not just because there's a man suffering. Your heart is wrenched because you're going, that's my God, the one who loves me, the one who would go to great lengths to save me. In fact, I'm watching the length that he would go. Not just that he would come in the form of a man and suffer, but that he would leave his throne, that he would dwell amongst haters, we, we talk about having haters. Nobody has haters like God has haters. Uh, David knew that, right? David didn't walk around saying, I got so much haters. I can't, I can't stand, especially in the Christian hip-hop community. Uh, so much of us, that talk about uh, how much haters we got. David never spoke like that talked about his enemies, but, but the way he talked about them, he said, Lord, uh, those who reproach you, those who hate you, their reproaches have fallen on me. The only reason I got haters is because they hate you, but they can't physically find you to kill you, so they come after me because I carry your name. My haters aren't my haters, they're your haters, and they only hate me because they hate you and I carry your name. Verse 34 says, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think there's there's three reasons, maybe more, that Jesus prayed this specific prayer. Uh, First of all, it's a sign that Jesus was truly under the crushing judgment Of God. As Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why why have you forsaken me? Isaiah 53, 10, which I uh, I want to remind you that Isaiah, uh, that the book of Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus, the Messiah, steps on the scene. And here's what he wrote. He said, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. So Jesus is under the crushing weight of God's judgment. Again, that same judgment that I talked about that you and I deserve, uh, that judgment of death. And yet Jesus steps in our place and he takes God's judgment on our behalf. And if we were to just kind of say, well, what was it that, that, that Jesus really agonized over, in the uh, not only um, on the cross, but in moments before the cross. As, as Pastor Josh uh, reminded us a couple weeks ago that uh, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was praying, and he was praying to the point that he sweat drops of blood. He was agonizing about what it was he had to face. Now, I would ask you, was he just agonizing over the torture? Is, is, is that really, uh, is it that simple? And I don't think it is. In fact, let me just make the argument a a little stronger, is that there are many people uh, we could argue that have suffered uh, to some degree, take what I'm saying lightly now, I'll I'll explain, I'll, I'll retract this statement in just a second, there are some people who have physically suffered in greater degrees than Jesus did, possibly. Now, you could also make the argument that Jesus suffered in a way that no man ever suffered because Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit, and so therefore, though he should have died a long time ago, he was able, by the strength of God, to keep enduring the suffering. So I think you could maybe make the argument that Jesus physically suffered greater than any man, but I just want to remind you, there have been people who have been martyred, and not just Christians that have been martyred, but people who have been martyred for their faith. I just happened to... uh, See on Facebook the other day, uh, 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 and I didn't take the time to write it down. I didn't know I'd bring it up to this, uh, this evening, but uh, it was a statue of a, of a saint, you know, as they would call him, a believer who was martyred and skinned alive, his entire body. And so the statue, you can see every ligament and every muscle in his body, and yet he's still standing there because he's still alive. So when Jesus is agonizing in the garden, is it just the physical suffering that he's agonizing over? Surely there are others who have suffered in, 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 in like degrees. In fact, we know that Peter was, uh, history tells us that he was crucified in the same manner, only upside down, because he refused to be crucified in the same manner of his Lord. So if I were to just ask the question, then what was it that Jesus agonized over? What was it that he suffered on the cross Uh, I'm just going to, I don't think that by any stretch of the imagination, I can clearly lay it out before us tonight. I don't think we'll ever know until we stand before him, but there's a few things I just want to mention. Number one, as I said, he was under the judgment of God, but that judgment was displayed in the fact that God had removed his hand of protection over Jesus, there, there was no more protecting Christ. What do you mean when, when you say protecting Christ? I want to remind you in Luke chapter 4, uh, 29, there was many ways in which God uh, aided Jesus while he was in human flesh. Remember when Jesus was in the wilderness and he was tempted by the devil and then the scripture says that uh, though, uh, though he was weak uh, and, 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 and hungry, that what happened then? That angels came and they ministered to him. And Luke chapter 4:29, it says they they got up. This is after Jesus declares himself to be the Messiah. He had just revealed himself in the scroll in the book of Isaiah said, it it, it is me of whom it is written." They thought that was pretty cool at first, but when Jesus uh, began to proclaim some other things, they didn't like that. And it says, they got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Then the next verse says, but he walked right through the crowd and went his way and went on his way. Well, what happened there? uh, I mean, they, they had just pushed him to the precipice of the city. They're getting ready to throw him off. And then the next verse says, and he just walked away. Well, how did that happen? It's because God's hand of protection was upon him. And though they wanted to get rid of him, they couldn't. In fact, there were many times where Jesus said, it's not yet my time. It's not yet my time. In fact, when it was finally his time, remember he tells Pilate, uh, Pilate says, speak up, come on, say something, say something. You know that I have the right to crucify you or not crucify you. And what does he tell Pilate? He says, you have no right other than that which God has given to you. You don't take my life from me. I lay it down and I raise it back up again. In other words, nobody was able to grab hold of Jesus they, they, they couldn't even drag him where they wanted to take him until, until God said, okay, now it's time. But when it's time, though, it was as though God's hand of protection was fully removed off of Jesus. And now men were able to do whatever it is that they had pleased. And God allowed it. So I, I think as we, as we think about uh, what it was that Jesus agonized over, uh, this is just one aspect that maybe we can just kind of lean into and say uh, wow for the first time Jesus was getting ready to experience what it was like for the father to just give him over I'm not saying that they weren't still connected I think that would be an impossibility some people would say that Jesus was separated from the father on the cross I, I don't think that's possible the two are one but there is a sense that Jesus in his human nature that God allows him just to get handed over no protection Whatever they want to do with you, it's, that's it. But can you imagine that also from an emotional standpoint where, where, where the Father just hands you over? No wonder why Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Another aspect in which we see the shame, and by the way, I meant to uh, just point us to Hebrews chapter 12 too as a, as a hint to what Jesus agonized about knowing that he was going to face the cross. It says this in Hebrews 12 too, Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him, despising the shame. So what was it that he he despised about the cross? What was it that he agonized over? Was it just the mere torture that he had to face? Is that what scared him? Or was it what the torture represented that God had removed his hand of protection? and that the judgment that you and I deserve was now falling upon the Son. Furthermore, I, I, I think the shame that Jesus experienced was God's displeasure of sinners now falling on Christ. Remember that the Father and the Son have always been in perfect unity, that the Father takes pleasure in the Son, and the Son takes pleasure in the Father. This has been going on forever. In fact, we can even make the argument that This is how creation came to be, that you and I were created for this purpose, to enjoy what God has been enjoying from all eternity. Let me say that again, that you and I were created for this purpose, to enjoy what God has been enjoying for all of eternity. And you would ask the question, well, what is it that God has been enjoying for all of eternity? His love for the Son. And the son likewise for all of eternity has been enjoying his relationship with the father. The father loves the son. The son loves the father. And you and I were created to enjoy what they've been enjoying. I like to say it like this. And I I don't think it's blasphemy. I think it's just a, a way to try to describe. It's almost as if the father had said to the son, you know, what we have is so good. It's so good. Why don't we create others to join them into our community? That they may know the love that I have for you and the love that you have for me. And when that happens, they'll know that they're fully loved. That's my thought. You can toss it or leave it. But now, for the first time, Jesus in human flesh... No longer has the, let me say it like this, feels the displeasure of the Father. As his displeasure for sinners falls upon Christ. Meaning that Jesus is now being treated as a sinner. I mean, that is what you mean when you say that Jesus died on the cross for you, isn't it? When you think about the worst sin that you've ever committed, I mean, that sin that you won't tell anybody about, that sin that makes you squirm in your seat, even as I say it. Almost as, as an embarrassment, as if somehow it could just magically pop up on the screen. What if? That on that day, when Jesus is on the cross, God looks at your sin, and instead of punishing you for what you did, Jesus is actually getting punished for what you did. He took your place. God's displeasure for your action and mine, God pours it out on Christ. God removes his t- protection, God shows his displeasure for sin, the judgment of sin falls on Christ. Second Corinthians 5, 21. Says, uh, we're told what happened transactionally when Jesus died on the cross, it says he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That does not mean, and I want to specify, because I've, I've, heard, I've heard some preachers, a preacher in particular, I won't name his name, go off on a tangent and just say the most blasphemous things. And he says, this means that when Jesus was on the cross, he became sin. And every sin that we have ever committed, that Jesus uh, embodied that on the cross. And he, and he took that somewhere that it didn't need to go. That does not mean that Jesus became the embodiment of sin and that, and that all of a sudden he felt all the guilty pleasures that you and I feel. That's not what this is saying. What it is saying is that every guilty pleasure which incurs God's wrath, Jesus embodied that punishment. Are you with me? That he died the death that is deserved. Here's the second thing I think that this prayer alludes to. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It also shows simultaneously that not only was God pouring out his displeasure on sinners, on Christ, but that at the same time, Jesus still had the pleasure of God. That Jesus was pleasing the Father in his sacrifice. Well, where do you get that from? Well, listen to his prayer. He says, my God, my God. Are you with me? He's still acknowledging that, that God is his God. And that the life that he's laying down, he's laying it down for the Father. Isaiah 53.10, again, I I just, I cannot stress it enough. This was written 700 years ago, not in theory. This This is a historical fact that the book of Isaiah was written 700 years before the crucifixion. And yet, listen to what Isaiah 53 says. Starting at verse 10, you can read the whole chapter. It's amazing. Yet it is the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Wait a minute. So this one individual is crushed for the guilt of others. God puts him to grief. And then in the next verse it says, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Well, wait a minute. If he dies... And indeed, this one does die. We'll read a little bit later how it actually talks about how he's going to make his grave with the wicked and the rich in his death. So how is it that this one dies that Isaiah the prophet's talking about? And yet at the same time, it says he's going to prolong his days. That only makes sense if the prophet is talking about somebody who resurrects from the dead and then sees the fruit of his death. You with me? Therefore, I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53 alludes to the fact that though God is crushing him, God is pleased with the sacrifice that he's making. So much so that he's going to allow him to see the fruit of his labor. And by the way, what is the fruit of Jesus' labor? Somebody say it out loud. What is the fruit of Jesus' labor? that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. What is the joy that was set before him? You and I are the fruit of his labor. You and I are the joy that Jesus has in presenting us to the Father. And number one, in pleasing the Father by uh, fulfilling the task which God had sent him to do. But then number two, by bringing us into relationship. And those two things aren't separate. They're one and the same. Because this was the will of the Father. That none should perish, but everyone should believe in him and have everlasting life. And it pleased Jesus to uh, fulfill the will of God, and it pleased the Father to crush him. That his blood would make atonement for our sins. Here's the third reason that I believe that uh, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is because it was a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, I just read to you Isaiah 53. Now, I'd like to read to you Psalm 22. It's not just uh, like Jesus was praying in the likeness of Psalm 22. Jesus, when he prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was actually quoting Psalm 22. And I would remind you as well that Psalm 22 was written a thousand years prior to Jesus' dying on the cross. And this is what Psalm 22 says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. If you keep reading and you go down to verse 14, it says, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint, which, by the way, that's what happens when you're crucified, right? If you've seen the passion, uh, there's one nail over here, and then they have to stretch uh, the the other hand so far that the bones become dislocated. My strength is dried up like a, a potsherd that's a, a piece of pottery. Because, you know, it's put in the oven and uh, it loses all of its moisture and it dries up. He describes it. That that's what his, his tongue is like. It, my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots, which, dare I say, ironically, not ironically, a fulfillment of prophecy, that after uh, Jesus had died, they actually argued over his garments, and they, and they couldn't decide who was going to get his garments. It was kind of like in jest, kind of making fun. Well, I want, I want, I want his clothes. No, 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 I want his clothes. And so, uh, so what they did is they, they, they cast lots. They, they tore his clothes and divided them. Psalm 22, written a 1,000 years before the crucifixion of Christ, gives in great detail. So it's no wonder when Jesus is on the cross crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not only as though he's feeling the judgment of God and this emotion is drawing Scripture out of him, Right? You know when you were, before you were, uh, before you gave your life to Jesus, you, you come up on a, on a car, you weren't paying attention, and you go to slam on your brake, and, and whatever was in you would come out, and before you'd be like, oh, sh-, right? <laughs> and as you're a believer, you've been a believer for some time, hopefully that's not the first thing that comes out anymore. Now, now you find yourself, uh, this has actually happened, right? I'm not, please, I'm not trying to sound holier than that. I'm just saying, like, we're, we're uh, as a Christian now, this new life. I almost hit a car, and I go, go, oh, Jesus, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. And then afterwards, I was like, yo, did I just pray, like, on the spot? Like, I didn't even think about praying. It just came out, right? When you're, when, and I think there's a sense in which Jesus is so saturated with the Word of God that it just comes out, but there's another sense in which Jesus wants us to know that he's fulfilling Scripture, that what happened to him is not by circumstance or by chance, but that this was ordained by God. That if you go back and study the scriptures, you'll see a thousand years ago, what was written is now happening. And so Jesus is actually pointing us. You go, where? Where Where in the scripture did it say this? And then Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you're a student of the scriptures, you go, where is that? I've heard that before. That's That's in Psalms. And then you go, you read the book of Psalms, and you come across this verse, and you're like, oh my goodness. It actually says they pierced my hands and my feet. This was before crucifixion was ever even invented. And then you find out later that they were making fun of him, and they actually cast lots. It's like a rolling of the dice for his clothes. And you're like, it says that too. No wonder why Jesus quoted this verse. He wanted us to know that this was the fulfillment of God's plan, that none of this was by accident. Verse 35 says, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. Now, he wasn't. He was calling on God, but they they, they kind of did a play on words and said, oh, oh, see, he's calling out on Elijah. And someone ran and filled a spudge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. They had mistaken his calling for God to be the calling of Elijah, Matthew Henry, a commentary concludes that they misunderstood on purpose. They said it aloud to taunt him as if to say, uh, look, God won't even hear him pray. He has to call out on one of the prophets. And of course, this would also be an accusation of idol worship. And the following verse tends to lead us in that exact direction. Or in that verse, because then it says, well, let's wait and see. Uh, Elijah will come and take him down. In other words, God's not going to save him. Verse 37, and uh, we'll kind of end here, but I'll read the, the rest. And it says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the bottom to the top. Is that what it said? No. It says from the top to the bottom. We'll talk about that. Let me just read the rest of it. It says, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Hebrews 10.19 gives us a little expository on what happened. When the earth had quaked. Now, I want to remind you that when the earth quakes, there was a a veil in the temple. There was the the holy and the holy of holies. That in the holies of holies was where the Ark of the Covenant was. Uh, In the Ark of the Covenant, if you'll remember with me, there was the commandments, the Ten Commandments, uh, written on stone. Those tablets were placed in the, the Ark of the Covenant. What else was in there? There was a jar. What was inside of the jar? The manna that had fallen from heaven. They had, they had taken some of the manna that God had used to preserve Israel with and feed them. They had put it in a jar as a, as a remembrance of God's provision. And the, the, the commandment was a remembrance of the covenant that God had made to be in relationship with with his people. And there was a third item in the Ark of the Covenant. And that third item was, uh, I'm sorry, it was Aaron's budding rod. And Aaron's uh, budding rod was symbolic to the fact that, uh, that it was from Aaron, Aaron's lineage that uh, they would become uh, the high priest. And that the, only the high priest could enter, there was only one man that could go on behalf of the people, and he would have to take a a sacrifice, the sacrifice of a perfect lamb. Now, there's no such thing as a perfect lamb, but symbolically, it was all white, it was without blemish, and it was young. And they would take that lamb uh, representing its innocence, and they would slaughter that lamb. And the high priest would take the blood of the lamb once a year, and he would take the blood and he would walk in through the veil, this, this big, huge curtain. And he would go into the holies of holies and he would present the blood of the lamb before the presence of God. It sounds very strange to our modern hearers, but we know uh, that the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, there's no forgiveness. In other words, if you are going to be forgiven, something must die in your place. Blood must be shed because God doesn't just close a blind eye to sin. It must be paid. Judgment must be executed. The, the blood was symbolic to the fact that it, the, the price had been paid. So the high priest would go in, he'd sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant seven times. And then he would come out of the veil. And what would he do? He would go to the people and he would sprinkle them with the blood seven times. Why? Because now they're sprinkled in the blood of the Lamb. Well, what does that symbolically represent? It represents that they're forgiven. In other words, it's almost as if, this is how I picture it in my mind, that if God were to look down from heaven and he would see a bunch of sinners, and in seeing a bunch of sinners, he would be reminded uh, that his holiness has been offended, as it were. And he would be forced to execute judgment. But imagine if all the sinners were covered in blood. The blood would cry out, as it were, and say, "Whoa, whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. Judgment has already been paid. The blood was the evidence that the price had been paid. And in this way, God would keep in relationship with his people. Now, it wasn't as though uh, the, the, the high priests were going behind God's back and doing something. God, God, no, what are you doing? I wanted to judge them. But rather, God is the one who orchestrated this whole thing. He's the one who established that there would be a high priest. He's the one that commanded that a lamb should be slain. And he's the one that beckoned them in to the holies of holies to bring the blood and to sprinkle the people so that in this way God could constantly be in relationship with his people. But we know that the blood of bulls and goats never really forgave people of their sins because if it did, then they wouldn't have to slaughter a lamb year after year after year. Instead, it was an annual reminder that they were sinners. In the presence of a holy God. And so every year they would look forward to the priest going in. Can you imagine? I mean, can you really imagine that you had committed some sin? I mean, you and I, you don't have to imagine too much. Imagine it now. You know, when you come to church and you're reminded of the last thing that you did. Can you imagine having to wait a whole year before you're forgiven again? Or at least from the standpoint that you can, uh, that you can rest assured, okay, whew, But but I got another imagery for you. Uh, What if you and the high priest weren't on good terms? And he was the one that was instructed to go into God's presence on your behalf. And you had just rubbed him the wrong way. I mean, things weren't for whatever reason. Or maybe you had disrespected one of his family members. How could you really rest assured that he's really going to pray for you? This is the problem that the Catholics have when they, when they go to the and they and they, you know, they sit between that curtain and they're confessing all their sins and then they find out that that guy's on TV for some sin that he had committed and you're like, oh my goodness, he was the one that was supposed to pray for me on my behalf, but he's got his own sins to deal with. And he hasn't even confessed those. That's why we know he got busted. are you <laughs> I'm not trying to be facetious here, but this is the reality. now And then, and then furthermore, you've got another problem. Is that high priests, they die. They don't live forever. So what happens when the guy that is supposed to intercede on your behalf and present blood on your behalf so that you'll be forgiven, what happens when he passes away? (laughs) All of these are, are problems that are intended by purpose. Because they show us that the old way of doing things was never really sufficient, that God was, uh, in a sense, uh, doing a child's comic book, if you will. Uh, and I hate to say it like that. That's, that's, that's probably not the best way to put it. But he was illustrating for us uh, what, what was in shadow that Jesus Christ would fulfill in reality. Well, what did Jesus fulfill? Remember, John the Baptist says uh, to his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you're a Jew, you're thinking uh, lamb, 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 lamb. Why why do you call him a lamb? Lambs get slaughtered. John the the Baptist, the guy that I look up to, he just called this guy Jesus. Not only calls him the Messiah, but but calls him a lamb. A lamb that takes away sin. Those lambs are slaughtered. Why is this guy going to be slaughtered? And And then John the Baptist says, go follow him. Follow him. Don't follow me. Follow him. The only reason you're following me is so I can push you to him. And then they go hang around with Jesus, and Jesus keeps talking about being crucified and dying. They're like, what what is going on? then they find out later that Jesus Jesus does die, and he tells them, I'm going to go to the Father on your behalf. Wait a minute, that's what high priests do. High priests go to to, to the Holy of Holies, and Jesus says he's going to go into the presence of the Father. But the scripture tells us that the temple was the, the veil, that there was an earthquake, and, and the veil was torn. But it doesn't say from, from bottom to top, which is really strange. Because if the earth shook and there was a veil that separated the Holy of Holies, God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant, where, where God's Spirit dwelled over the Holy of Holies, where the high priest would enter in and he'd enter into God's presence, and, and over the ark of the covenant was uh, what's called the mercy seat, where they would sprinkle the blood. The mercy seat, the seat of mercy. If you want mercy, this is how you get it. You got to come with blood. But but through the presence of God and the place where the high priest would come in, there was a, a veil, and the high priest had to enter through this veil. So the scripture says that when Jesus dies on the cross, there's this, there's this earthquake and the veil is torn from top to bottom. But the weird part is that when there's an earthquake and the earth shifts, you would think that the, the, the curtain tears from bottom to top. But it's not the earth that's breaking the veil. It's God. And it's almost like there was a contract in play. And God says, remember that contract? The one where it was never really sufficient to take away the sins? The one where the high priest died, remember that one? We're doing a new thing. And he takes the contract and he rips it. And now what separated us between, uh, from the high priest to the presence of God was a veil, it's now, it's now open. Which means that you and I now have access to God through Christ. And by the way, we now have a high priest who... Who lives forever? I'm closing, I promise, I promise. We now have a high priest who lives forever. We don't ever have to worry about Jesus dying and not being able to present his blood on our behalf. And by the way, he didn't just present a lamb, what did he present? He presented his own body. Jesus lives forever. And the Bible says he makes intercession intercession on our behalf. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the uh, uh, the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, that curtain represents his flesh, it was torn. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a heart of full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. And let me just finish this and we'll pray. i just read the rest of this verse here. It says, There also were uh, women looking on from a distance among who were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger uh, of Joses, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He was also with, the gospel tells us, with uh, Nicodemus, who came at night. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned that the centurion, that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him, in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where he w- was laid. I just I, w- I want to remind you as we close that on the cross, we didn't read it in this gospel account. But before Jesus says unto you, I commit my spirit, he says, it is finished. It's it's finished. God has made a new covenant that you and I are now forgiven. There's no sacrifice you need to bring but to accept the sacrifice that he gave. There's got to be more. I mean, I got to do more. No, he he did it all. Yeah, but don't I need to to go out and witness? I need to go out and, no, he, 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 he did it all. What you and I need to do is receive. If we receive, He'll empower us to go do the rest. But there's nothing that we need to do to be approved by God but to rest in the sacrifice that was made. It is finished, the price has been paid. If there's any thought in your mind, what will happen when I stand before God on, the, on judgment day? This is the next thought that should enter your mind. The price has been paid. And we rest in that. Amen? Let us pray. Father, we, we do believe, Lord, that you paid the price on the cross. And that there's no sacrifice that we could bring you that would be greater than the sacrifice of Jesus. There's no work that we could work that would be greater than what Jesus worked on the cross. So that we come to you empty handed. Recognizing that we're the ones who need help. You don't need our help. We need yours. And all the help that we ever needed or will ever need was purchased for us on that day. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give us the strength. First and foremost, before we do anything for you, that you would give us the strength just to trust in you. To believe that your sacrifice was enough. That our guilty conscience would be wiped away, not when we've gone and done some task. But our guilty conscience would be wiped away when we believe what Jesus did. That in some real sense, we're standing sprinkled in his blood. We, we, We walk around, we go to work spiritually, in a sense, sprinkled in the blood of Jesus, that we're claimed by you. And that reality is that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we're one with you, that the Holy Spirit no longer is in a temple but now dwells inside of us. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who have a hard time believing that, who are overcome with guilt and shame I pray that they would know that the price has been paid. I pray even today, God, even now, that you would wash them clean. If that's you tonight and you have uh, never given your life to Jesus, or, or maybe, uh, let, me, let me put it in this way, that you've never accepted truly the price that has been paid for you. Accepted it in a way that it's finally put your, your heart at peace once and for all. And you say, God, I want to know you in that way. If that's, if that's you, I'm going to just ask you to take a step of faith. Would you just raise your hand right where you're at? And you say, God, I want, to, I, I, I want to know you in that way. I want to know your peace, your mercy, your grace. God bless you. I see your hand. Anybody else? God bless you, my brother. I see your hand. There's no other sacrifice that will ever be made to atone for your sins or mine. There's no other Messiah that's going to come. And there's no other work that you could do that would please God more than what Christ has done. He is the only sacrifice. Are you willing to accept that? And are you willing to receive that? Just one last time tonight. If that's if that's you, would you also raise your hand? God bless you. I see your hand. For those of you who who raise your hand, I'm just gonna have you right where you're at. I'm just going to pray with you. We're going to receive the gift by faith. And you can just ask God into your heart right, right now. You just follow after me. Repeat after me. Say this. Say, God, I believe that you love me. I believe that you sent your son to die for me. And I receive that gift tonight. I thank you that the veil has been torn, that there's no separation between your spirit and my life. I pray that you would help me to walk with you all the days of my life, that you would change me. God, I have nothing to offer you, but I receive what you're offering to me. I receive your son, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. We're going to continue to worship.